0: If you have a Bible today, please open to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2. Paul now turns our attention on how to choose joy. Nineteen times Paul tells us about joy in this little book. How can he have a joy in his heart while he is in prison? Well, today we learn that joy is not determined by our circumstances. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit uh, produced by God in our heart when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 4, Paul commands us to rejoice all the time. You can find out how mature you are in Christ by how joyful you are. You can find out how immature you are by how quickly you lose your joy. So what attitude dominates your life today? I mean, I mean, right now. Joy that comes from God or a bitter, angry, negative, critical spirit. We're going to discover that the different things that can steal our joy, but of course the main thing that can suck the joy out of our heart is what? Well, that would be sin. And when we give in to sin, we need to do what David did. We need to come to God and ask for forgiveness and that prayer of repentance, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, Psalm Fifty-one, verse 12. Would you please stand with me now as I read Philippians chapter 2 and we pick it up where we left off. Philippians 2 verses 12 to 14. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure, do all things without murmurings and disputings. May we pray. Now, Father, thank you for your word and what it means to us. I thank you for this entire chapter. And I pray, God, that as we we dig into what you've said to us, that we'll take it to heart. You'll change us, make us more like Christ. If there be one that knows not Jesus as their Savior, may today be the day they are born again into your family for each Christian now God I ask remove the distractions may we focus on your message may you restore joy to our hearts that others might see what you have done for us in Jesus name we pray amen thank you you may be seated how many have ever been to sight and sound would you raise your hand okay a lot of you A lot of you. How many have seen the current presentation called Jesus? Would you raise your hand? Okay. Uh, Did you like Jesus? Well, sure you did. I mean, you love Jesus, right? (laughs) You love Jesus. All right. So, for those who have not gone, if you'd like to go, the last showing is October 5th. I really encourage you uh, to go and see it. It is a tremendous tremendous presentation. You talk to anybody that just raised their hand, and they will recommend it as well. One of the things that struck me about the Jesus presentation was the overflowing joy that came from his personality. I mean, he smiled, and he laughed, he engaged people, he connected with people, he served people, and yes, he saved people. Philippians two five commands us to have the mind of Christ, an attitude of humble service, and the benefit of living that way is abundant joy, overflowing joy. Now, what are your joy stealers? You can write a couple down there in your notes. Are are you letting anything steal your joy today? Trials, hard times, health crisis family difficulties, personal attacks, disagreements, tense relationships, sinful habits. Here Paul's in a trial, and he might be executed. Uh, I want you to learn from him how he could choose the things that would bring joy in his life, no matter what the circumstances you are in. And if it worked for him, then I'm telling you that it can work for you too. I read a story in a commentary. I mean, this is a Bible commentary, and it makes me smile every time I read about it. It's about a grandmother and her nine-year-old daughter. They were spending the evening together when the little girl suddenly looked up and asked, Grandma, how old are you? And the woman was a bit startled at the question, and said, well, honey, when you're my age, you don't share your age with anybody. (laughs) Ah, go ahead, Grandma. You can trust me, she said. No, dear, no, dear. I don't tell anyone my age. Well, grandmother got busy fixing supper and then realized the little darling had been absent for about 20 minutes, much too long. She checked around upstairs and she found her in her bedroom and found that her granddaughter had dumped the contents of her purse onto the bed. And she's sitting in the midst of this mess, holding up her grandmother's license. (laughs) When their eyes met, she announced, Grandma, you're 76. (sighs) Why, yes, I am. How did you know that? I found the date of your birthday, she said, here on your driver's license, and I subtracted that year from this year, so you're 76. That's right, sweetheart. Your grandmother is 76. The little girl continued as she stared at the driver's license, thinking it was somewhat of a report card. She said, Grandma, you also made an F in sex. (laughs) (laughs) Have you lost your ability to laugh? I, I mean, laugh at the right things. Joy is something we all want in life. And I believe Jesus Christ wants Christians to be holy And to be happy. That is, if you define happiness God's way. God has planted a seed in our hearts. And that is joy. Uh, How many of us parents remember the babies uh, waking up in the morning? Sometimes they cry. And sometimes the babies or the toddlers, they're in there and they're laughing hilariously. You just hear them. They're just giggling away. And you wonder, what in the world is going on in there? Why would they do that? Because God has planted the seed of joy in their hearts. It's not true just in the, uh, uh, in, in, among humans. It's, it's true in the animal kingdom. You look at puppies and kittens. Look how they play. You look at the chimpanzees and ponies. See how they play. Look at the lion and bear cubs and see how they play. Somewhere between childhood and adulthood, many forget how to laugh. And Solomon said, A merry heart doeth good like... Like medicine. That's right. Are you choosing things in life that will bring joy to your heart and to your life? Well, today we can rediscover uh, the joy, the secret of joy, how to choose joy in your life. And it begins with number one, choose to obey God's word. Now, we're only going to get to three of them today, but the passage is filled with helps to us. Verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Paul wrote this from prison. And he said, when I was with you, you obeyed God. Uh, But I want to see more of it now that I'm gone. In fact, you should obey God more now that I'm gone. Why? Because as you grow closer to the Lord, your joy will increase. Paul says you are responsible for your spiritual growth, whether I'm with you or not whether I'm absent or with you. I want to hear of your obedience. Your obedience is not to be dependent upon your pastor. Your obedience is not to be dependent upon your ABF teacher, uh, your discipler, your family members. Your obedience is dependent upon your choices. You are to own your obedience. Do you own your obedience? Are you responsible for it? You're going to give an account for it. In this chapter, we're given three specific commands. Uh, you see it in verse 2. Be unified. Be unified. He says, be like-minded with the same love. Some say, but my job is to keep the pastor and the church on the straight and narrow path. No, no. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Uh, your job is to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Uh, don't be prideful. He says in verse 3. Uh, he says, don't, and then he says, serve others. Put others before yourself. Now, look in page two of your notes. Look what Jesus Christ uh, taught us. Blessed, and that's the word for happy. Blessed are those that hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus said, By coming to Valley Forge Baptist today, you have just increased your joy by 50%. Is that not what he said? Blessed are they that hear the Word of God. And right now, I'm preaching you, Philippians. You're hearing the Word of God, but you can increase it another 50% if you keep it, if you obey it, if you follow it. It's not enough just to hear it. Uh, you need to, 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 to meditate upon it. Believe it. Obey it. People who attend worship services regularly are happier than Others. It's a brand new study, came out in January. But it's just like all those other studies. The most recent poll about who are the happiest people in America. By the way, it's not the Atlantic City crowd. It's not the Las Vegas crowd. It's not the uh, Wall Street crowd. It's not the uh, uh, Hollywood crowd. It's not the drug users or the alcohol users. Uh, It's not those. uh, It's not those who who just want to go out and party, party, party. They're not the happiest. It's not even the workaholics. Who is it then? The happiest people in America, according to this poll, again, Pew Research, are the people that go to church, the people that are engaged. And it's not true just in America. They, they studied more than two dozen countries, more than 20 countries discovered the same thing. Blessed are they that hear and keep the word of God. It just confirms what Jesus said. Luke eleven twenty eight. 28. Is that right? And so, if you want to have the joy of the Lord, it begins by obeying God. People who not only profess faith in God, but have an active relationship, and they participate in their local church. How to choose joy in your life. Choose to obey God's word. And then number two, choose to walk close to God. Obey God and, and then walk close to God. Now, we can define that several different ways. We can define it with a word that's, uh, it's called sanctification. To be set apart for God, for special use by God. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Our intimacy with God. Drawing close to God. James 4.8. Our spiritual growth transformed into Christ-likeness. Now, who is responsible for my spiritual growth? Who is responsible for me to get close to God, my sanctification? Well, is it faith or is it effort? Is it trust or is it obedience? There are two extremes here on how Christians can get close to God. One is passive and one is active. Thousands of books have been written supporting both sides. Uh, one one uh, author has defined them this way. Look in your notes. There, quietism. Quietism is where the believer is passive. You let go, and you let God. You just surrender your will to God and he does it all. Quietism can be a bit mystical. It's very popular among the Quakers. I I read most of a book by Watchman Nee called The Spiritual Man. 600 pages, which he basically says, just, just surrender, just surrender. And then there are some extreme charismatics say that when you completely surrender, you will no longer sin. When you completely surrender, you will no longer be tempted to sin. Now, here's the problem with that. What happens when you sin? Well, whose fault is it? is it? Is it your fault? Well, it can't be your fault because you completely surrender to Christ and He controls you. Well, it can't be God's fault because God does not tempt people to sin. And then the other extreme is called pietism. Quietism, the believer is passive. Pietism, the believer is active. Now, for the most part, pietists are not out of balance. Uh, There can be an overemphasis on self-effort. And if you put an overemphasis on your own efforts, you'll experience two things. You're going to say, well, look what I did. And you become prideful. Or you're going to fail, and then you're going to be in despair. So you the danger is pride, or the danger is despair, and you have no one else to turn to. So what does the Apostle Paul teach about these two extremes? Well, let's look in the Bible. Look at verse 12, the end of verse 12, where he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. And so it appears that Paul is definitely a Pietist. Be active. He says, work out. But look at verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you. Uh, And you say something happened between verses 12 and 13. And now Paul's a quietist. (laughs) Let God do it. And so you, you have both you and God at work. You are working out. And God is working in. A divine paradox. Now we can't figure that out. But we accept it by faith. But there are many divine paradoxes in the Bible. I would ask you, is Jesus God or man? What's the answer? Both. Both. Does that mean that he's 50% God, 50% man? No. He's 100% God and 100% man. You say, how can that be? We accept it by faith. Who wrote Philippians? Was it Paul or God? What's the answer? Both. So did, did did Paul write like Philippians 1 1 and God write 1-2 and then Paul wrote 1 3 and they took turns? Is that what happened? No, no. Both. That's the answer. And so the, so every word of Philippians came from the vocabulary of the Apostle Paul. Every word of God is pure. The answer is both. Now your your sanctification, your spiritual growth, your closeness to God, is it God or is it you? What's the answer? Answers answer is both. It's a divine paradox. Now, the cults love to misinterpret verse. They say you have to work for your salvation, and you need to understand what it says so you can help them and explain the truth to them. Paul is not teaching salvation by works. The Philippians are already Christians. We're to live out our faith, and what God has put in the inside is supposed to show up on the outside. Philippians 2.12 says, Work It does not say work for your salvation. It says work out your own salvation. A big difference. One is a heresy, one is sound doctrine. Now, work out, it means to work continually to bring something to fulfillment. Or completion. I I want you to think about a a gold mine or a silver mine. God put the gold and the silver in the mountains, didn't He? And so what happens is man has to dig these tunnels and these shafts and has to work really hard to find the golden nuggets and the silver to bring it out. God put it in, and we work to be able to bring it out. The song that Jody sang today that's what grace is for. What happened is uh, uh, a composer. A composer created this song. And a composer wrote down the notes, uh, wrote down the words, and put the song on paper. But then it took a pianist, and it took a vocalist, it took, it took uh, Flossie and Jody to be able to take the music that was put down on paper and to bring it out, and to be able to bring uh, the music and the beauty that blessed our hearts God let them use their skills to be able to bring about that music so we could hear it and enjoy it and be blessed and worship the Lord. Does it make sense? The compo- and so what God has done, He has composed salvation. He's put gold and silver in your hearts. But He says you are to work to be able to bring it out. You work out your salvation. You let it show up in your life, in your attitude, your words, your actions, your life, your love. It shows up on the outside. We need the disciplines of being in God's Word every day. We need the disciplines of spending time in prayer every day. We need the disciplines of being in God's house every week. We need the disciplines of exercising our spiritual gifts every week, of seizing opportunities to share Christ. Now, look with me on page three. Uh, What are the clear teachings on salvation? One, salvation is by faith. It is by faith, this is clear, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Two, salvation is free. Uh, The gift of God is eternal life uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Three, salvation is the decision to follow Christ, that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. You believe in your heart. Lord means master, it means boss, and you shall be saved. We do not work for our salvation, but once we are saved, we are to work for God. God. Uh, good works. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. It is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And so when you put your faith in Christ as Savior and Lord, God begins working in you. So the Christian life, it, it is not to be like a roller coaster. It's not up and down, up and down. No, no. It's in and out. God works in, you work out. Then He works in you some more and then you work out some more. This desire to work for God comes from him. Are you doing anything for God now? Are you serving God now? Have you thought, you know, maybe I can give Anthony (coughs) Iomi a call and say, hey, do you need any helpers in Sunday School Junior Church? Do you need any helpers with our special needs children? Can you give Adriana Cox a call and say, hey, you know, I, I, I can help out in the nursery. I can be a substitute. I can be a blessing. I can help... Serve. You can do something for God. The happiest people on earth serve God with their whole heart. It is God's will for us to work. And so we are to be quietists and pietists at the same time. We're to yield to God. We're to surrender to God. And then we're to roll up our sleeves and be active, resisting temptation, serving in the local church. Now, how are we to work out our salvation? Look what he says, two words. He says in verse 12, with fear and trembling. With fear, phobos. We get a word phobia. With trembling, traumas. We get a word trauma. Paul says, work out your salvation with phobias and traumas. You say, what in the world is he saying? He is saying that there should be a healthy fear in your heart so you don't offend God. Trembling means Shaking. It means to shake. We're to have a healthy anxiety because we want to do the right thing. We have a healthy reverence and respect to please God. This healthy fear puts you on guard so you don't stumble into sin. If you stumble into sin, you will what? You'll lose your joy. You'll lose your relationship with God. Satan says, go ahead and lie. It makes you look good. Satan says, go ahead and uh, uh, steal. You deserve it. Satan says, go ahead and flirt. Cheating on your spouse doesn't matter. Go ahead and text a friend during church. Ignoring the preaching doesn't matter. If you do not admit that you are weak, if you do not understand how destructive sin is in your life, if you don't acknowledge the power of temptation, then you are naive. And Satan will steal your joy and your life will be a roller coaster. You'll be up and you'll be down. I heard a a short radio spot it's called insight and the pastor was examining the advertisement of a of a different church that boasted we have casual worship and on the radio this man said those two terms do not go together casual and worship if your view of god is casual then you need to go back and read the first book of the bible and you need to read the last book of the bible because God is not casual. And our worship of God is not to be casual. How to choose joy in your life. You choose You choose to obey God's word. You choose to walk close to God. You own it. And then number three, you choose to stop complaining. You want to have joy? Stop complaining. Verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. That's really two ways of saying the same thing. Stop complaining. It is ironic. We live in one of the most blessed and prosperous times in all of human history and yet we have one of the most discontented societies ever. There's more complaining today by the masses and the media than ever before. Social media gives everybody an outlet to be able to complain and to vent. One sociologist proposed a contributing factor to our discontent and complaining. I'd like to present it to you. I want to see if you agree. His general point is that our discontented generation is a result of small families. Two or less children. The average number of children in America right now is 1.9. One brother told his sister, I'm the one, you're the .9. Uh, So you got 1.9 is the average. You go back 100 years ago and it was uh, nearly 5 kids per family. The sociologist says, small families in a materialistic society like ours breeds selfish children. He wrote, when you have one or two children, uh, they get up in the morning, and mom says to them, uh, uh, what, would you, what would you like for lunch today? I, I, I want a peanut butter and jelly, and you, you know how I like it. You know, I like it. I like it cut crossways. And so mom, she makes the lunch, and she, she gets it all set for him. Uh, uh, w- what time would you like to be home for dinner? He says, well, I got basketball practice. I'll be home at 5 o'clock for dinner. And what would you like for dinner tonight? And he says, well, I think I like this. Okay, okay. But you go to a family where there's four, five, and six kids, and you come down. And what's mom? Here's a bag, right? Here's a bag. Uh, dinner is at 5.30, 30. If you're here, you eat. If you miss it, you don't. Uh, what's going on here? There's a, there's a larger family, uh, and, and there has to be some, some conformity. When you go to a table in a small family, and your mother has broken her back to prepare some kind of cuisine that she's taken out of an exotic cookbook, and after taking one bite, in the typical one or two-child family, the kid says, I don't like it. I don't want this. In a family of five or six kids, somebody says, I don't like it. Uh, The kid next to him says, good, I'll take it. (laughs) That's mine. Here's the difference. You see, in a small family, typically, typically in a small family, the system bends to the child. But when you have a large family, the child bends to the system. Does Does that make sense? And so what you have is the sociologist said is when, he, when kids grow up in an environment where the system bends to them, you have child-centered parenting. Doesn't have to be, but it's common. It's an interesting observation. He says children growing up today control the family. I don't want to go to camp. I don't want to go to Sunday school. I don't want to go to Sunday night. I don't want to go to Wednesday. I don't want to go to owant What is the result of letting them control their life? They don't want to become adults with adult responsibility because that means conformity. That's not life. At work, nobody says, well, you dress the way you want to dress. No, no, here's the uniform, you wear it. Here's the dress code, you follow it. Uh, They don't ask, "Uh, what time would you like to take your break today? (laughs) Uh, What time would you like to take lunch? How long would you take for lunch today? No, no, that—that's that, not life. Nobody says that. They get a job. They're told what they can and cannot wear. They're told what time to show up, what time to leave. They're told what they're supposed to do. Conformity and responsibility. But if they grow up in an environment that they control, then when they become adults, they don't like being controlled. They become discontent. They complain. He says. And so what what you have is you have a whole generation today where they want to go from high school graduation to retirement living. (laughs) And they want to skip the forty-five years of hard work in between. Doesn't work that way. That's not life. And so they're grumbling and they're complaining and they're discontent and they they complain at, at work and they complain at home and then some will come to church. I wanted my way on page 4 of your notes. We'll not take the time to look at Numbers 11, but let me just summarize it for you. Top of page 4. God hates. God hates. Circle the word hates. God hates an ungrateful heart. God hates a complaining tongue. God killed Israelites for complaining. You say, really? He did. If you're griping, grumbling, and complaining, you are really blaming God. God is the one who put you where you are. God is the one who put you in your family and your church and your school and your job and your country and your health issues. Murmurings and disputings are joy stealers. Now, what exactly is murmuring? It's not a loud, boisterous, growling, but it's rather a discontented, muttering, negative comments, complaining. It's whining. It's a rejection of God's providence and circumstances in your life. And I promise you, the more you keep it up, the more God's going to keep piling it on. If they haven't learned that lesson? Let me give them someone else. You know how many people come to me and say, Pastor, Pastor, you've got to fix that person. Go fix that person. Maybe God wants that person in your life. Maybe God is teaching you patience. Maybe God wants that grace that Jody sang about today, wants that grace to come out from your heart and your life to them. Murmurings. Some people complain because they're married. Some people complain because they're single. Some people complain because they're old. Some people complain because they're young. You see, you get to choose your attitude. You can choose to be thankful. You can choose to be content. You can choose to be joyful. Uh, Murmurings and disputings. What are disputings? It is a vocal argument, a loud disagreeing with others. Basically, it's a critic. Sometimes, sometimes it's directed at God, and sometimes it's directed at others. When you refuse to support the God ordained authority in your life, you are disputing. God says, Stop it. Stop the complaining. Stop the complaining about me. Stop the complaining about other people, about your boss, about your family, about the police, about the president, about your pastor. Other people will do things you don't like. That's life. Well, I don't like what they said. I don't like the song they picked. I don't like their attitude. I don't like. I love what Dr. Don Six said. Take a baby aspirin and get over it. <laughs> Isn't that good? Take a baby aspirin and get over it. Uh, at a typical little league baseball game, a mother, she did not like the umps call against her precious little boy. He called a strike. You know what she did? She's in the stands. She actually did it. She stood up. And she began to yell, I want another up! I want another up! I want another up! And she was an influencer because because right next to her uh, was uh, uh, a lady and a, and a, a dad. And they got up and they began saying the same thing. We want a new up! And then pretty soon, all of the parents, they all stood up. And they're chanting together in unison, We want a new up! We want a new up! I mean, this guy couldn't ignore it. So he stopped, he stood up, he turned around, he took off his uh, umpire's mask and he turned around and he walked to the fence and he looked at them and he raised his hand and he said, I want new parents! I, I, I want new parents! <laughs> do all things. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. You know, anyone can complain, anyone can find fault. And what, what God is telling the church at Philippi, I mean, this is a really good church. And God is saying, I want you to stop your complaining. I think God is telling us the same thing. Why don't you choose to be different? Why don't you choose to be a, a good finder? You know what a good finder is? A good finder is someone who can look at someone else and kind of like a detective. And you're looking for something that you can admire, something that you can compliment, something that you can praise. The Bible uses the word edify. Edify. It means to build up. Why don't you be a good finder? Why don't you be an edifier? Edify one another. In fact, it's one of the commands given to us a good finder on purpose. Why would I do that? Because it makes God happy. It makes God happy. Let's choose to find the good in other people and let's choose to talk about it. It's a great quality in parents. You know, it's a great quality in a boss, in a coach, in a pastor, in an employee. It is what God is looking for from you and for me. So how to choose joy in your life? Choose to obey Choose to obey God's Word. Choose to walk close to God. Choose to stop complaining. Let me share a prayer that I would ask you to pray with me today. I put it there in your notes. Lord, in the early years, everyone at Valley Forge Baptist Temple was so thankful and appreciative for your blessings. In these later years, there is a great temptation to complain and grumble about things we don't like. Help us. Teach us to be grateful, O Lord, for we deserve absolutely nothing. Teach us to use our words to build up one another, to be patient and forgiving. When we disagree, may your Holy Spirit help us to disagree in an agreeable manner. Inspire us now to grow our outreach, to expand our facilities, and to serve our Savior and others with joy, with great joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you pray that with me? And let God bring joy to your heart. May we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the word of God. You've told us that the Philippian church was a good church you told us that they were generous. You've told us they, they were morally pure and they had sound doctrine and they had quality leaders and that they were obedient. Lord, we know it's a church very much like ours. But you've also warned us that there were some, because of spiritual pride, they caused divisions, because of, of petty conflicts, because of preferences. God, would you give all of us a spirit of gratitude, a spirit of humility, a spirit of joy, would we be committed to striving together for the faith of the gospel so that when, when the unsaved, when the unbelievers visit, they might see and sense that we love you, that we love one another, and we are committed to shining the light of Christ to others. Now, Father, I pray you'd begin with me. I pray that you remove spiritual pride, critical spirit, negative thoughts, negative words. God, help me, our pastors, our deacons, our leaders, everyone who attends, to heed the challenge, the command to the Philippians. May we take it to heart. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You'd say, Pastor, if I, if I die today, I know I would go to heaven. I have the joy of the Lord because the God of joy is in my heart. There was a time that I have trusted Christ as my Savior. If I die today, I know I'd go to heaven. I am born again. I'm a born-again child of God. I'm unashamed. I'm not ashamed to be able to, to profess you before others. Would you simply raise your hand? I've trusted Christ as my Savior. Thank you. You may put your hands down. He said, Pastor, I I think I'm going to heaven. I hope I would go to heaven, but I'm not sure. I have doubts, and I want the joy that Paul is writing about in this chapter. I want to know the forgiveness of Christ. I believe that Jesus died for me, and today I want to give my heart to Christ and become a true Christian. If that's you, I can lead you in the salvation prayer. My prayer won't save you, but you can trust Christ right where you're seated. You can pray and confess the Lord. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you'd like to do that with me, would you simply raise your hand? Hold it up high for just a moment. I want to trust Jesus as my Savior. God bless you. Hold it up high. Anyone else? I want to trust Jesus as my Savior right now today. I sense the Spirit of God tapping in my heart I want to receive from anyone else. I want to pray with you today. Would you pray with me now? Sincerely, silently from your heart, God will hear the prayer of your heart. He heard Hannah's prayer. Pray with me now. Dear Lord, I know that I am a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I believe Jesus died for me. And rose again. Today, I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and as my Savior. Please save me today. Heads about, eyes are closed. Christian, may I ask you, did the Spirit of God speak to you today from the Word of God about your attitude? your service your joy or lack of it your spirit are you a good finder are you obeying the word of God are you seeking to walk close to the Lord and are you ready to give up grumbling and complaining if God has spoken to your heart today we're going to stand as we sing you don't need to sing you just spend the time talking to God Ask for forgiveness. Ask for a fresh anointing and filling. Ask that your attitude and words and actions would be the mind of Christ. Humble service to others. Father, now take your word, apply it to our hearts. Starting with me, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. As we stand together, let's sing, Uh, let's sing, only trust Him. And that's where it begins trusting the Lord, as we sing together on the first verse. To have a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18 tonight. 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18 this evening, we continue our study of David. David is a man after God's own heart. And here in 1 Samuel 18, uh, we continue to pick up uh, the story of his life. And tonight, we find David defended by God, defended by God again and again, and again. Uh, last time we saw that David behaved himself wisely before Saul, in verses 14 and 15, King Saul became unreasonable. He became paranoid. He became jealous. He became, well, a bit crazy. An evil spirit from the Lord plagued him, according to verse 10. This was not some mental disorder. This was a demonic attack. And God allowed a demon A demonic spirit to plague Saul because God is sovereign. He can use everything to fulfill his purpose, even the demonic host. Remember when Pharaoh hardened his heart against Moses. He hardened his heart against God. Uh, He did that a few times. Uh, If you become stubborn, uh, God uh, can confirm you in that. And after a while, the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And that's something that happened here to King Saul. If you become disobedient to the authority in your life, there comes a time that God will confirm that and let that sin dominate you. Revelation 22, 11, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. Um, God allowed the evil spirit to come against Saul. But the result was this. The evil spirit comes against Saul, and then Saul took his anger. He took his jealousy, his rage, his paranoia out against David. Now, why would that be? Why would God allow Saul to mistreat David? What's the purpose? It is part of the schooling, the college, that God is putting David through to become king, not just any king, but to become the most famous king of Israel. And so as we learn about David's life, we can learn about our life as well. David is going to learn to let God be his defender. It is a lesson that he is going to take, it's going to take several chapters, and he will have his back up against the wall again and again. And so let's pick it up in 1 Samuel 18. Would you stand with me? And we'll learn from what David went through in these dark and difficult days. And then we'll learn to see what God is teaching us from the same passage. 1 Samuel chapter 18. And we'll pick up the account in verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. And Saul said to David, Behold, my elder daughter Merab; her will I give thee to wife. Only be thou valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul said, Let not mine hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. And David said unto Saul, Who am I? What is my life? and my father's family in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king. But it came to pass at that time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given unto Adriel, the Maholathite, to wife. And Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul said, I will give him her. That she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Wherefore Saul said to David, Thou shalt this day be my son in law in the one of the twain. Saul commanded to his servants, saying, Commune with David secretly and say, Behold, the king hath delight in thee, and all his servants love thee. Now therefore be The king's son in law. May we pray. Father, tonight we thank you that you have recorded in the Old Testament uh, these stories, these lessons, these truths, these experiences that made men and women men and women after God's own heart. Now, Father, I pray that as we relive their experience, we understand what they went through, we feel what they felt, that you would then teach us. Help us to understand. Why you defended David? Why you let him live another day? God then teach us why you give us another day to live in this earth. May we understand our purpose. May we fulfill it. If there be one that knows not Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, tonight would you touch them by your spirit, convict them of sin. May they see that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, putting their faith and trust in him. Strengthen each Christian In our faith, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. The writer H.G. Wells says of one of his characters, he was not so much a human being as a civil war. That's a pretty good description of King Saul. I mean, he became a living civil war. He was miserable. He was angry. He was suspicious. And because of his jealousy, he made multiple attempts to eliminate his most trusted servant, David. But he had to do it in a way that he didn't want to make himself look bad. And so we saw that at the end of verse 17. For Saul said, and you can see it's kind of a commentary. He's saying it in his heart. Let not mine hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. I don't want to look bad. Uh, King Saul is hunting David, but he is afraid of him. Back up to the end of verse 15. We saw this last time. Uh, Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him. Shouldn't it be the other way around? King Saul is hunting David. King Saul wants to kill david and so you would think it would be david would be the one that would be afraid but there the bible says in verse 15 it is king saul who is afraid isn't that interesting sometimes the very people who are out to get us are the ones who are afraid of us This was the case with Saul and David. David behaved himself wisely. The people loved him. David had done nothing wrong. We have to understand that David was a a model of humility, a model of loyalty, of dependability, and integrity. And he just kept doing the right thing. Now, if you go back to chapter 17, David went from being an unknown shepherd boy, a teenager, maybe 15, and he became a national hero overnight. Uh, We don't know now how much time has passed from chapter 17 to 18, but David is now an officer. He's an officer in Saul's army. He commands a battalion of men. Uh, He is fighting the enemies of Israel, the Philistines. But beginning in chapter 18, we see everything that he is trusting in. Everything that makes him secure is going to be taken away. And so Saul makes an offer of marriage of his daughter to David, verse 17 to 19. Now Saul had already broken his promise, hasn't he? I remember when Goliath was challenging his army? Do you remember all the soldiers were scared and David came and he brought the food from Jesse the father and David hears Goliath calling out, defying the, the living God? What should be done to the man who brings down the enemy of the living God. Do you remember the promise that was made? There were several things. If you defeat Goliath, what will the king give you? He'll give you, will he give you money? Give you great riches? What about your father's house? What's he going to do to your father's house? Tax-free for life. Wouldn't you like that? But what was the third thing that, that was promised? What was it? his daughter's hand in marriage. As I said, time has passed. It hasn't happened. He's still single. He's still waiting. And now Saul comes and he says, here's what we'll do, David. I will give you my daughter Merib as your wife. But then you read another verse and he changes his mind. And he gives Merib to someone else. And then he hears, he hears that that Michael... Loves David. Now I I I don't know that I can interpret the verse uh, very clearly. When we get to heaven, we'll know for sure. Uh, But in verse twenty, Michael, Saul's daughter, loves David, and they they tell Saul, and it pleased him. And Saul said, "I will give him her, that she may be a snare to him." Have you ever heard a father talk about that way about his daughter? And so you have to wonder does he know something about Michael that we don't know? Uh, Or is he just referring to, I'm going to send him out to battle, and, and the way he can take my daughter's hand in marriage is kill 100 Philistine soldiers? Is that the snare? We'll find out when we get to heaven. There might be more to it. Uh, So David, uh, he gets the news. the, the, The servants of Saul come. And what does he do? He goes out, and he doesn't kill just 100 Philistine enemy soldiers. But how many? 200. 200 enemy soldiers. And Saul thought David would surely die in battle. And that's what we see in verse 21. Saul said, maybe that the hand of the Philistines would be against him. And so here we have, here we have, God is now going to step in and defend David. And here's what I want you to see. Uh, God, first of all, defends David using his army. He defends David using his army. You see in verse 25, uh, Saul said, Thus shall you say to David. And so he goes out, he goes out into the battle. And what happens is, uh, David wins. Uh, David and his men kill Philistines uh, in the battle, verse 27. Pick it up in verse 28. And Saul, Saul knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was yet more afraid of David. Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went forth. And it came to pass after they went forth that David behaved himself more wisely to all the servants of Saul, so that his name was much set by God defends David using the battalion of men with him, his army. In chapter 18, Saul tries to eliminate David through the hand of the Philistines. It was really a plot. It was a subtle plot. It was a secret plot. I'll use my daughter as bait to get him to go to battle so that he'll die. But not so in chapter 19. His plan to kill David wasn't just in his heart, but now in a meeting with his top military brass. Look with me at chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul spake to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. So it went from a subtle plot. He's just thinking about in his heart, how can, I, how can I make a plan to get David killed in battle? And now it's going to be a little more overt. What's he going to do? He has a meeting with his top military brass. And King Saul says, we have a new HVT. We have a new HVT. And what would that be? What would that be? A high value target. Kate knows her military (laughs) enemies. A high value target. Uh, our military uh, uses that term. We've used that term to describe men like Osama bin Laden. We've used that term to describe men like Saddam Hussein. Uh, the mission is not complete until this person is killed or captured. And in this case, he tells his top brass, the, the, the mission is kill David. He is the new High value target. But notice, uh, God defends David, not just using his army, but God defends David, number two, using Jonathan. Using Jonathan, his son. And so we pick it up in chapter 19, verse 2. And Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, seeketh to kill thee. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take heed to thyself until the morning, and abide in a secret place, and hide thyself. That I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where thou art, and I will commune with my father of thee, and what I see, that I will tell thee. Now verse 4, and Jonathan spake good of David unto Saul his father, and said unto him, Let not the king, this is his dad, let not king, the king, dad, listen to me, don't sin against your servant against David, because he had not sinned against you, and because his his words have been to thee word very good. For he did put his life in his hand and slew the Philistine. And the Lord wrought a great salvation for all Israel. Thou sawest it. You did rejoice, remember? Wherefore then wilt thou sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? Jonathan says, Dad, Dad, stop. Stop this. You can't kill David. Why? Jonathan says, he's not sinned against you. He is good. He is loyal. He is faithful, verses 4 and 5. He risked his life by fighting our enemies. God used him to bring a great victory against our enemies, the Philistines. Dad, remember, you rejoiced. You were happy in the victory. If you kill him, you'll be shedding innocent blood. Look at Saul's response in verse 6, chapter 19, verse 6. And Saul hearkened unto the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swear, as the Lord liveth, he shall not be slain. And Saul agrees, albeit only for a very short time. And so we have a short reconciliation. Verse 7, Jonathan called David. Uh, Jonathan showed him all of the things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul. And he was in his presence as in times past. The Philistines attack again. Verse 8. And against David, he goes out to fight, and again, God brings a great victory. Again, the demonic spirit comes upon Saul, verse 9. Now pick it up in verse 10. And Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with the javelin, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence, and he smote the javelin unto the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. This is the second time that Saul has taken a spear, a javelin, and thrown it at David to try and kill him. Now, God has used uh, the Israeli army, uh, Saul's army, to defend David. Now, God defends David using Jonathan. One more. God defends David using Michael. Using Michael. We pick that up in verse 11. Saul also sent messengers unto David's house to watch him. And to slay him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If thou say not thy thy life tonight, tomorrow thou shalt be slain. You'll be dead. So Michael let David down through a window. That happened several times in the Bible, doesn't it? Happened to Paul? And he went and fled and escaped. And Michael took an image, a statue, an idol, "'laid it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster "'and covered it with a cloth. (coughs) "'And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, "'He is sick.' "'And Saul sent the messengers again to see David, saying, "'Bring him up to me in the bed that I may slay him.' "'And when the messengers were come in, behold, "'there was an image in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster.' You talk about drama. Uh, You talk about, uh, you can hear the music building, like what's going to happen here? Uh, What a story. What drama. Uh, Saul's men, David's executioners, they have come. They've come at dusk. They're looking at the front door. They're going to wait all night. They're going to kill him in the morning. Michael says to David she looks out the window and she sees them she she knows this is going to happen if you stay the night you will be killed and so she finds some rope and lets him down through a window and then she puts images statues idols what in the world is Michael doing with statues what is she doing with images But she takes them, and she she puts them in the bed, and she uh, puts the quilt over, and she gets some goat's hair, and and so if they were to peek in the window, it would look like David is there in the bed. Finally, the morning comes. David doesn't come out. Knock at the door. And Michael, what does she do? She plugs in the vaporizer. Uh, I mean, she comes to the door with the thermometer in her hand. Oh, he's sick. He can't come out today. They don't know what to do, so they go back to King Saul. And King Saul King Saul tells those soldiers, You return and you bring him back to me on his sick bed, and I will kill him. You talk about hatred, a murderous plan. Well, that gave David some time to be able to escape and find the prophet Samuel down at Ramah. God defended David. God protected David using Michael. Here's what I find interesting. King Saul is bent on killing David. This manhunt is going to go on for several more chapters. It is going to go on for several more years. Here's what is interesting. God defended David. How? How? Saul is trying to kill David, first of all, subtly, and God uses Saul's own army to protect David. And then he becomes more overt in his plan. Uh, Saul makes a plan to kill David, and then he uses Jonathan. Who is that? That's Saul's son. Saul's son protects David. And then, and then he sends out executioners, and, and then what happens? Michael is King Saul's daughter. Isn't that interesting? God uses Saul's army. He uses Saul's son. He uses Saul's daughter. All to be able to protect David. God is quietly protecting David. God defended David sometimes when David was even unaware of it. Now, this was not just written about David for David. This is written for us. And here's what I'd like us to consider tonight. What are the ways that God is our defender. What are the ways that God is our protector? What are the ways that God is our security? Some ways, like David, that we do not even give thought to it. And I'd like you to give thought to it tonight. So here's the application. How does God defend and protect us? Can you think of some ways that God protects you and He protects your family? He protects your friends and our church. Well, let's begin with physically. God God protects us physically. Uh, Simply by where you live, you have protection, don't you? I mean, there are some places right now in the world that are very unsafe physically. Can you name one, and can you name why it is unsafe? Iran. 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 Iran is very unsafe, especially if you are a what? Christian. Christian. If you're a Christian, there are multiple Christians who are, who are in jail, who have been put to death in Iran in 2019. But you don't live there. You live here. Yes. Pamela, what? China. China. Uh, we know a few years ago. That there was favor with wanting to train Chinese pastors. And then that quick, it turned the other way. Uh, f- last count, 4,000 churches have been destroyed or crosses have been torn down. Pastor Joseph Gu was in prison. He's under house arrest. Many have been imprisoned. Uh, many, many missionaries, tent makers have been expelled from the country. Not a safe place to be. Can you think of one? North Korea. North Korea. North Korea is a very dangerous place if you are a Christian. Also, you might starve in North Korea because they have, they have famine. The people are not treated well. It's a very, it's very uh, dangerous place to be in the world. Any other places you'd rather not be tonight because it wouldn't be safe? Yes? Dominican a Dominican Republic. Who's going to vacation there? All right. <laughs> wow. Uh, what's going on there? They're trying to figure it out. Ricky, you got one? Germany. Germany. What's going on in Germany? Do you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> don't know what's going on in Germany? Well, there's been some terrorist acts there. Uh, there are some unsafe places in the world. How about the city of brotherly love after 11 o'clock at night? <laughs> Not going there late. Uh, we all know about the drug bust that just happened uh, here in Philadelphia. Violent crimes. We live in a relatively safe area, don't we? There's not a lot of violent crimes going on in the Collegeville, Phoenixville, Pottstown area. Now, I know some here and there, but, but not, not, not so much. So, God protects us physically where you live. God has protected us physically, uh, chronologically, uh, the time that we now live in, the time that we live in, if we were able to take the clock and turn it back about 260 years to the mid 1700s, 1730s, 1740s, 1750, you read your Pennsylvania history. And what you'll find not dozens, but hundreds and hundreds of kidnappings and murders of settlers by the Indians. Now, just so you put it in the context, they thought they were retaliating for what the British did to them with deaths and scalpings. And so, my brother and I our great, 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 it's either the fifth or the sixth great-grandfather were kidnapped by Indians at the foot of the Tuscarora Mountain, about a 45-minute drive just just west of Harrisburg. There were three men. Uh, One was killed by the Indians. Uh, The other two were captured. They were taken to the Indian camp. I have this in our family history, which I received last year from my aunt. Uh, They were going to make him run the gauntlet, and an older Indian woman uh, took, which would have been our ancestor, and took him in and and it was kind of like a semi-adoption protected him from being killed in that gauntlet. Time passed, they were working in the fields as basically POWs and what happened is when the Indians were out hunting these two men thought they would take off. And so they ran down from the Indian women down to a creek, and they found a canoe, and they went downstream. They went downstream far enough until the thing got snagged, and then they found another uh, canoe, which they said in the record they dispatched for their escape. And so they dispatched the second canoe, and through that they were actually injured. And when they were found, they are dehydrated, semi-conscious, and rescued. And if that didn't happen, I wouldn't be here today, and neither would my brother. He says he's adopted, but he's not. Uh, so uh, uh, we're here today because uh, because God protected them. God allowed them to escape. Now, if you fast forward just a couple of decades, if you lived in this area in the 1760s and the 1770s, there'd be a good chance that the British soldiers could come to your house, knock on your door, or kick it open, and say, "I want your food. I'm going to sleep in your bed. You go to the barn." That's what happened in this area. Read the documents. That's what was going on. It wasn't a safe place to be. You fast forward to 1776, Uh, we just visited it yesterday, and, and there they signed that Declaration of Independence. They authorized a war for independence, and that meant that you or your brother or your sons or your uncles or your dad would go into war. And we have two of those in our family tree. Many of you have relatives that have served in the different wars to defend our freedom. And some going all the way back to the war for independence. Dangerous time. Uh, The right place, but the wrong time. But you and I live at the right time. And we live in the right place. And we have peace. We have safety. That's a gift from God we don't deserve it why why are you here and not in iran china north korea or germany oh why is it now and not in a different time what's the purpose that god brought you here right now to this place to defend you and to give you security god protects us physically here's one accidents and injury only heaven will reveal how many times God intervened and protected you. Some of you know the stories. Most of us don't know what God has done to intervene to protect us from accident, from injury. Many of us heard the 9-11 stories of people who did not go to work on September 11th. What happened? Well, well, uh, some, uh, some forgot to set their alarm. Some decided to take a day off. Some decided to go in a little bit later. Story after story. I'd like you to hear one of those stories that comes from Valley Forge Baptist. Once a week, Brother Dave Davis would go to the World Trade Center because of work. Brother Davis come. Come tell us how God was protecting you and you didn't even know it, and how He did that.
1: It was September, Monday, September 10th, 2001, that I went to my office. <clears throat> we lived where we live now in Valley Forge. I would drive 110 miles one way to work every day. My office was in North Jersey, and I would grab the path, it's called, from the Newark area. Uh, and take the path into New York City, and I would go to my office in the World Trade Center. I had an office there in the basement. We, I went almost every Tuesday for meetings, Uh, but this particular Monday, September 10th, 2001, I showed up in my office and I called my wife, and I said, I have a severe stomach ache. I'm sweating profusely, something's wrong, something's blowing up in my stomach. I'm gonna to go to the emergency room. She said, don't you dare go to the emergency room up there. I won't visit you. You get in the car, drive home. On September 11th, 2001, the day we so well know, I wasn't in the World Trade Center. I was in the Phoenixville Hospital. There, I was in the bathroom and my roommate called and said, Dave, Dave, get out here. A plane just crashed into the World Trade Center. The place I could have been with our 40 employees, you see, I worked for a billion-dollar company. It was a retail company. And they had a store in the basement in the shopping mall, the World Trade Center. My office was in there. And almost every Tuesday, I would meet investors and, and different people there. It just so happened that this one I couldn't make because I was in the hospital in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. God, unknown to me, removed me from it. As you know, the fast forward story, fast forward 10 years to 2011, once again, I'm in my office, this time locally. I have a stomach ache and I said to Ellen, I'm going to the hospital. I had three surgeries in eight days. I was in a coma for 13 days. My daughter, Kristen, who went to the West Coast, uh, walked the aisle without me, got married here. Around 10, 11, 12 days in, the doctor said to my wife, your husband has a ventilator. He's on 24 hour days dialysis. His kidneys are failed, his heart's failing, his liver' failing, his body's shutting down. You might as well shut the ventilator off. Four doctors in a matter of twelve hours told my wife to pull the plug. God she said, no, God's going to heal him." On the thirteenth day, I woke up. Jesus only Jesus could do that. But praise the Lord for his unseen hand. In 2001, September 10th, removing me from September 11th, the World Trade Center, and 10 years later, when a doctor said, pull the plug, she said, God's gonna heal him. Thank you for praying for me. Glory to God.
0: That's a pretty obvious one, but God's done it for you too. You just may not know about it, but you'll find out in heaven. Because you're still here. God is protecting you physically. When he came out of that that coma, uh, I was in there to visit him. And and he couldn't talk because the tube was still down his throat. And so I I took a keyboard in and plugged it into a computer. I, I bought one of those oversized keyboards so he could communicate by typing to us. But because because he was so swollen when the kidneys not working. By the way, he went on dialysis, and that's another thing that God did. Only one in 300 people who are on dialysis will ever go off dialysis. God did that for Brother Davis. He did that for him. But that day, he, 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 his fingers were too swollen that he couldn't even type on the oversized keyboard. And what had happened is when I plugged the computer and I accidentally plugged on... I did unplug him. But I, <laughs> whoop, whoop, whoop. So I plugged him back in. <laughs> he was awake. He was awake. So uh, we plugged him back in. I thought, well, this isn't working. So, so I wrote the alphabet out, and he could take a pencil, and I thought, well, he could point at the letters. And so we did that, and it began to point. D. V. And we said, no, Dave, you know, t- tell us what, what, you know, what, what do you want? There, there's no words that begin DV. And so he tries it again. D-V, and Ellen's thinking, oh no, he lost his mind. But he, <laughs> so he said, well, let's give it, so he'd give it another try. D-V-D. You know what he wanted? He wanted to see his daughter's wedding. And so we had that and plugged it in and, and uh, I think multiple nurses came and got to see the wedding with Dave and Ellen and wept and prayed and wept and prayed and rejoiced. And God used that in a wonderful way and eventually went on to be on television, eventually went on uh, to be able to uh, be part of the uh, Christmas greeting to all those in the mainline health system. God protected them physically. He protects you physically. Here's one. God protects us spiritually. There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it? This happened to Peter. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Uh, Jesus said, but I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. John chapter 17, Jesus prays for us. Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit prays for us with utterings that cannot be spoken in human language. God the Spirit and God the Son have prayed to God the Father for our protection spiritually. It's important that we stay close to God and far away from sin. Revelation twelve ten. we are told that, that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us before our God day and night. And in Revelation twelve ten, he is cast down. He is cast down out of heaven. You say, how in the world can Satan go to heaven? How can he be in heaven to accuse us? In the book of Hebrews, the Bible says that the tabernacle, it says that, that the temple is, the, the earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple are patterned after what? After the heavenly, the book of Hebrews. So what that means is you, you have this, this outer court and you have an inner court and you have the holy place and the holy of holies. Job chapter 1, Satan is talking to God and and I believe the best illustration is just using what we find in Hebrews and so Satan has access to heaven though when he fell, he was cast out of the, the presence of God, out of the holy of holies. But he still has access in that outer court And he accused Job, and he accuses you and me, and and he says, look at what Scott Wendell did. Look at what Ron Colton did. Look at what Jody Wendell did. And he makes these accusations day and night. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, there is war in heaven, and he is cast down. 1 John chapter 2. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ is our defense attorney. And so when Satan makes those accusations to God the Father, he looks at on his right hand and there is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Father says, uh, did that child of God commit that sin against me? And the Lord Jesus Christ says, yes, but I died for them. I shed my blood for them. They are justified. They are sanctified. They are cleansed. They are forgiven. And we remember those sins no more. Amen. Jesus Christ is our defender physically he is our defender spiritually we stand unaccused before god the father and so the question i ask you is why did god defend david why why didn't god just let saul kill david time and time again what's the answer It's God's will for David to be alive because why? Because Jesus Christ is going to come through the line of David. It really is a satanic attack against David. It's it's an attack against God. Why has God kept you alive for another day? Why does he protect you physically? Why does he protect you spiritually? He has a purpose for you what Brother England was talking about. We don't have one life. We have one life. We have one life to use for Christ. One life to reach one more for Christ. One life to encourage one more Christian. One life to live for Christ. To serve Him. To make a difference. Use your life for Christ. Serve Him. Share your faith. Make a difference in the lives of others. Oh, are you thankful for God's protecting hand? Are you thankful for uh, God's prayers for you? Are you thankful for the time God gives you, for the freedom you have, for the health you have, for the money you have, for the energy you have, for the blessings God has given you? He's filled you up that you might do something with it. And so we have, by the grace of God, another day. It's called Monday. Thank God it's Monday and Tuesday, and Wednesday. And so when you, when you leave church, you, you make sure you, you got a track. You make sure you, 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 you have confessed your sins to the Lord. You fill with the Spirit. You got joy in your heart and a smile on your face, and you're ready to go. You're ready to go to, to talk to someone, to share Christ, to share the joy of Christ, to give an invitation to church, to VBS. Are you the gal's luncheon for the widows? Monday night basketball, there's kind of something for everyone. You just got to find them. You just got to make the connection and say, hey, we have something at our church that God can use to help you spiritually. How many times have we heard people say, well, I, I came to church because I was just driving by and I saw it. Something is always going on. Now, you don't have to be at every something, right? You don't have to be at every something. But something is going on, and you can invite someone. You can impact someone. You can be a witness to someone. Because that person that you speak to, that person is someone's son or daughter, mother or father, a brother or sister. And we have relatives spread around the country. We want someone to witness to them. So why wouldn't we witness to their relatives? Why? Why did God defend David the same reason he defends you? He wants to use you for his glory. May we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for how you protected Brother Davis, how you protect all of us from so many different ways, physically and spiritually. Now, God, may we take, may we take the gift of life. May we take the gift of salvation. And may we, Joyfully share it with others. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand together.